0: Every day we hear stories of systems and machines that are taking on tasks until recently we thought only human beings alone could ever do, Uh, making medical diagnoses and driving cars, drafting legal contracts and composing music, designing buildings and writing news reports. It seems to me to be the most significant technological trend that's currently underway, a whole realm of activity that, as I said until recently, we thought was out of reach, turns out not to be because of these uh, technological advances that are taking place. And so the question that interests and concerns me is, well, what does this mean for the vast majority of us for whom you know our job is our main, if not our only source of income?
1: Welcome back from the holiday break, everybody. I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix. A podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. COVID-19 is just one factor that has changed the way we work and live in a short space of time. Technological change, notably the adoption of automation technologies, are beginning to transform the way many of us work, and it will have a lasting impact on job losses. Observers of this unfolding phenomenon have long asked how automation may affect the working lives of men and women differently. Technology adoption could displace millions of people from their jobs. Many others will need to change the way they work. Globally, 40 million to 160 million women may need to transition occupations by 2030, often into higher skilled roles. If they make these transitions, women could find more productive, better paid work. But if they don't, they could face a growing wage gap or leave the labor market altogether. COVID-19 has had a detrimental impact on gender equality and resulted in hundreds of thousands of women leaving the workforce. To prevent this from happening again, we need to understand the technological changes that are coming and the impact that they're likely to have, and whether this will be different for men and women. Joining us on the show today is Dr. Daniel Siskind, who is the co-author of the best-selling book, The Future of Professions, and the author of A World Without Work. Today we will discuss the impact of technology, particularly artificial intelligence, on work and society, and most importantly try to answer the question that's on everyone's mind, which is, are robots going to take your job? And if so, what can you do to prepare for the future world of work? The term the future of work has become pretty commonplace over the last few years. The broad idea underpinning the phrase is that rapidly advancing technological disruption will radically change the way society values work and employment. However, this disruption goes far beyond unskilled jobs and manual labor, and its effects are already being felt in highly skilled traditional white collar occupations. Here, Daniel explains why this is.
0: Every day we hear stories of systems and machines that are taking on tasks until recently we thought only human beings alone could ever do. Uh, Making medical diagnoses and driving cars, drafting legal contracts and composing music, designing buildings and writing news reports. This seems to me to be the most significant technological trend that's currently underway. A whole realm of activity that, as I said, until recently we thought was out of reach, turns out not to be because of these... Uh, technological advances that are taking place, and so the question that interests and concerns me is: Well, what does this mean for the vast majority of us, for whom you know our job is our main, if not our only, source of income? And I recently wrote a book called A World Without Work because I just don't think we're taking seriously enough the threat of a world where there's not enough well-paid work for everyone to do because of these technological changes that are taking place it's worth saying though that i don't think there's going to be some big technological bang in the next few years after which lots of people wake up and find themselves without work the robots have taken the jobs that is very unlikely to happen in my view i think work is going to remain for some time to come and anyone who picks up my writing expecting to hear that account they're going to be bitterly disappointed because that isn't what i think lies ahead. What worries me instead is a more gradual problem.
1: If COVID-19 has taught us anything over the last year, it's that there are no certainties. Even once the virus becomes manageable, working life has changed in important ways. If we thought automation was a challenge before the pandemic, then it's important to recognise that it might be an even greater challenge after the pandemic. Here, Daniel explains why this is.
0: One way to think about what's happened over the last few months is that we have found ourselves in a world with less work, not because the robots took all the jobs, but because this virus just completely decimated the demand that so many jobs relied upon, and the interventions that we've been forced to adopt to contain the spread of the virus have just made economic matters worse. So. You know A whole set of challenges that I write about in my work that I thought we'd face with growing severity as we move through the 21st century and the coming decades, we've instead had to face right now because of this virus. Andrew Yang, the former US presidential candidate, put it quite nicely a few months ago. He said, I should have been talking about a pandemic instead of automation because there's a real sense in which the challenges that we've had to face are very similar to the challenges that those who worry about automation have been writing about for some time. So, I think there's one sense in which the pandemic has given us a glimpse of some of the challenges that we might face in the future because of technological change. But I also think the pandemic may have accelerated some of these technological trends as well. And I mean there's various reasons for this. One is that you know, inevitably accompanying the pandemic around the world we've seen recessions and one of the interesting features of recessions is that the evidence suggests in certain countries that when economies turn down, automation can pick up. So just one example, the most distinctive feature of the US labor market over the last few decades has been how technology has hollowed out, that technology has eaten away at lots of the middling skilled jobs in the middle of the labor market, but has actually struggled to automate many of the low-skilled and many of the higher skilled jobs. That that was the story, particularly for the last two decades of the 20th century. What's interesting, though, is that when you look at when those middling-skilled job losses due to automation actually took place, well, it looks like about 88% of them, 88% of those job losses took place within one year of a recession. The vast majority of those job losses due to automation took place during or around an economic downturn. So that's that I think is one reason to just to be aware of the possibility that automation might be picking up at the moment. Another, and this is just more prosaic, is that the pandemic has just created an entirely novel incentive to automate the work that people do. Put bluntly, a machine cannot catch the virus. It's not going to fall ill and have to take time off work or isolate to protect customers or co-workers. And so at the margin, this new incentive to automate the work that people do seems to me to make automation more rather than less likely.
1: Whereas the disruption caused by COVID-19 was felt almost overnight, Daniel says the changes created from technological advancements will be more gradual, which provides more time for us to manage the impact, even if it's just as far reaching.
0: What worries me is a less dramatic Story, but I don't think any less consequential one. I think for a long time, the thought was that systems and machines, that new technologies were particularly good at doing what economists called routine tasks, tasks that are relatively easy for us to articulate how it is that we perform those tasks. And so it was relatively easy to write a set of instructions for a machine to follow. Certain types of Clerical work or certain types of bookkeeping or you know, tasks like that. But what I think people have also tended to think is that systems and machines struggle to do non-routine tasks, tasks that are more complex, perhaps, or harder for us to articulate exactly how it is that we do them. So tasks that involve faculties like creativity or judgment or even empathy. And I mean, this was certainly the case in the economic literature. You know, what are the tasks of driving a car, making a medical diagnosis, or identifying a bird at a fleeting glimpse have in common? Well, these were all tasks that until recently leading economists thought could not readily be automated. And yet today, increasingly, they all can be. Almost all major car manufacturers have driver's car programs. There are countless systems that can diagnose medical problems. Uh, and there's even an app developed by the Cornell laboratory of ornithology that can tell you what a particular bird is at a fleeting glimpse. Now, what's interesting for me is that why was it that economists thought that these tasks couldn't be automated? Well, these are classic cases of non-routine tasks. And so this at a deeper level is, I think, what's so interesting and troubling about the technological changes that are taking place. Technology isn't just taking on routine tasks now, it's also taking on non-routine tasks. And these are the sorts of things that, for instance, white-collar workers tend to think sit at the core of what they do. A lawyer or a doctor might say to me, you don't understand what my job does is, well, it requires faculties like judgment or creativity or even empathy. And these sorts of things a machine could never do. And it is increasingly turning out that that is not the case.
1: Given the changes that are coming, the question on everyone's mind, is what can we do to keep our jobs? What skills do we need to compete in the future of work?
0: I mean, very crudely, I think there are two, the young aspiring professionals say, what ought I to do to prepare for this future that you have in mind? I say there are two strategies. Either you try and compete with these systems and machines, you try and do the sorts of things that they cannot yet do. And in spite of everything that we've been talking about, clearly there are large areas of human activity that are out of reach of even the most capable machines. Still, certain types of problem solving skills, still, certain types of creative skills, still, certain types of interpersonal skills. Although, as I've said, I think systems and machines are encroaching on those areas of our working lives too. There's then a different strategy, though, which is that instead you become the sort of person who can build these systems and machines, who can design and operate and use uh, these increasingly capable systems. Now, that distinction between compete and build might sound relatively anodyne, but what's interesting is that when you look in practice at what we actually do in our education systems or indeed in our you know, professional institutions for educating and training people, uh, we tend to do neither of those things. In fact, we tend to teach people to do precisely the sorts of routine activities that many of these systems and machines can already do. You know, think about a junior lawyer, for instance. What do they spend the first chunk of their career doing document review document assembly document retrieval well these are all exactly the sorts of things that these increasingly capable systems and machines are getting better and better at doing Uh, and it strikes me that for young people to cut their teeth on these sorts of activities is not to prepare them well for the sorts of work uh, that will become more important for people to do in the future.
1: In a scenario where automation unfolds on the scale of past technological disruptions, women and men could face job displacement, but the composition of potential job losses and gains could be different. If women can take advantage of transition opportunities, they could maintain their current share of employment. But if they can't, gender inequality could worsen. Here, Daniel explains how technological advancements can increase existing inequalities.
0: I don't think it's a coincidence that today, worries about inequality are intensifying at exactly the same time as worries about automation are growing. You know, These two problems are very closely related. Today, the labor market is the main way that we share our income in society. For most people, we said right at the start, their job is their main, if not their only source of income. The inequalities that we see around us today show that this approach is already creaking. Some people get far more for their efforts than others. Technological unemployment, in my view, a world where some people find themselves without work because of these technological changes, well, that's just a more extreme version of that same story, but one that ends where some people simply receive nothing at all. So those people who say that the threat of automation is some sort of distant threat that's looming in the distance and we don't need to worry about now, I think that's a great mistake. I think it's very closely related to the inequalities that we already see unfolding because of technological change. And so for me, inequality and automation are both parts of the same story. The pandemic in particular has also had really quite dire implications for inequality as well. There was a moment at the start of the pandemic when People talked about it being the sort of great lever that it wouldn't discriminate according to gender or race or socioeconomic background or so on. And, we, and, and you know, that has just turned out not to be the case. It's turned out not to be the case either in terms of the medical impact of the pandemic, and it's also turned out not to be the case with respect to the economic impact of the pandemic. You know, One of the ironies, tragic ironies of the pandemic has been that many lower paid workers, particularly those involved in service roles, a shop assistant on a high street or a barista in a coffee shop, a waiter in a restaurant, a receptionist in an office, and so on. Many of these people, before this pandemic began, their roles were actually some of the hardest roles to automate. And The reason was that their roles involved some kind of interpersonal interaction, some kind of manual dexterity that was still quite hard to automate. Actually, it turns out, to use the language that we were using before, actually quite a lot of non-routine tasks tend to be concentrated in less well-paid roles. And so there's actually been quite a lot of job growth in these service roles over the last few years because they've been so hard to automate. Now, there are issues, of course, around the pay and the quality of that work. As I said, though, the tragic irony of the pandemic is that these jobs have been hardest-hit precisely Because they have those features that made them hard to automate. It's precisely because they involve interpersonal interaction, which is how the virus spreads, or because they involve some kind of manual dexterity, you know, in a poorly ventilated indoor space like a factory or a warehouse, say, uh, that's made them particularly susceptible to the sort of economic damage caused by this virus. And so it's been, I think, one of the most Troubling feature of the pandemic is that while many white-collar workers have been able to use technology to, you know, retreat to the comfort of their home office and actually work much the same as they worked before, but just at a distance, many less well-paid roles, which are very closely tied to particular places—high streets, offices, you know, city centres, and so on—they've really been hard hit. It's so one of my worries looking ahead: is well, how quickly are these corners of the labour market going to? return? How quickly is demand going to return for all these types of workers? I think people who say, talk about the end of the high street or you know the death of the city centre, that officers are over, I think they're all wildly overstating their case. I mean, I think all of these things are going to come back in time. But how quickly? I'm not sure. And to the same extent as before, again, I'm not sure. Both of those observations, I think, raise you know, quite troubling questions about When is there going to be enough demand in these places in in the years to come to support all those workers who relied on them in the past?
1: Finally, Daniel shares why it's important for leaders to reflect on the last 12 months if they want to prepare for the future challenges they're likely to encounter.
0: One way to think about what we've been involved in over the last eight months is a sort of massive unplanned pilot scheme in the use of technology in the workplace and a pilot scheme in the use of different models of leadership. And as with any pilot scheme, some of this experimentation is going to have turned out not to have worked very well at all. But I think there are also in the last eight to 12 months, some examples of successes as well, you know, particularly using technology to work in very different ways. And so I think an important task for many leaders at the moment is, as you would with any pilot scheme, to be trying to gather as much data as you can on what's happened over the last eight to 12 months. Talking to colleagues, talking to clients, talking to employees, and so on, and trying to learn as much as we can what has and what has not worked well, so that once this pandemic phase, as I said, and as I hope it will do, uh, we're able to, you know, learn the lessons of this experiment we've all been forced to take part in uh, out of necessity over the last few months I think that's one of the few positive ways to think about what's happened over the last year is that there are lots of lessons to learn uh, for thinking about the future inevitably this pandemic is going to fade but the threat of automation is not you know if anything the pandemic has made it greater and so I think there is a, a great burden on leaders also in government too to learn as much as we can about what has and what has not worked well in dealing with these challenges over the last few months so that we are more prepared and more ready um, when the threat of automation picks up once again and starts to challenge and test us.
1: In the immediate future advancements in technology won't necessarily replace all jobs, but it will alter the way most of us work. The parts of our jobs that are routine, administrative, and repetitive will likely be replaced by technology. According to the consulting firm McKinsey, for 60% of all jobs, at least one third of activities can be automated. Employees will be freed up to undertake new tasks in new ways, which will require new skills. Based on what Daniel shared, I think the goal for each of us is to reflect on the lessons learnt over the last 12 months and commit to continually learning and developing our skill sets. This is how we can survive and thrive when inevitable changes come. Before you go, just a quick reminder that you can get a copy of my book, The Fix, or The or Audible version from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, or at all major retailers. In reading The Fix, you'll learn what the barriers are that all women face, and how gender inequality creates challenges to men's fulfillment at work. Most importantly, you'll discover what we can do to remove these obstacles, and how we can begin to make workplaces work for everybody. So get your copy today and let me know what you think by leaving a review on Amazon. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.